But I tell my, my audiences, if you're not uncomfortable every day, you're not leading. And so why would that be true in all these other realms of your leadership, right? So sure. I'm uncomfortable because I'm launching a new product or I'm hiring a whole new team or we're going through org changes. All of that is really uncomfortable. And we somehow, we learn how to navigate it and we, we view it as sort of the ability to do that as a skill set. But we expect diversity and inclusion to somehow sort of magically, you know, magically come down from above and land in our lap. But it's uncomfortable too. And I, I just, it confuses me because things that are worth having are often work. You know, they're work. They require discipline. They require changing your habits. They require trying new things. They require making mistakes. They require apologizing. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the journey we have to go on with this work is stretching ourselves and our competency and also relying on others and not getting it right. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. One of my best friends is a black man. He and I connect nearly every day, though admittedly not as much recently. We've known each other for almost 25 years, and you can imagine we've been through a lot together. Went to high school, close in college, He was there for me through my mom's illness and her death, supported each other in finding our careers, supported each other in finding our spouses, starting families. We have supported each other in becoming better men. And I care greatly for him. I see him like a brother, someone I would do anything for, and I know he would do the same for me. But I have never asked him about his experience as a black man, not once. I keep asking myself why. I have been asking this question for months now probably should have been asking it for years. Why haven't I leaned into having an important conversation with this person that I care about? Why haven't I reached out to let him know that I want to hear about his life as a black man in America? The truth is, I'm scared. I'm scared to upset him. I'm scared to say the wrong thing. I'm scared of disrupting the peace. I've been scared, if I'm really honest, about really hearing about his pain and feeling like I can't help. And yet therein lies the irony By not asking, I am part of the problem. In my work day in and day out, I talk to leaders about the importance of discomfort and vulnerability. Being a leader often requires that you lean into some very uncomfortable situations, very uncomfortable conversations. You take risks, and oftentimes you have to take significant risks. But for me, when it comes to taking this kind of risk, to seek to understand the painful impacts of my privilege, to seek to understand the pain of one of my best friends, I've held back. I'm constantly supporting others in leaning into discomfort and uncertainty, but I've been unwilling to lean into this myself with someone I really care about. I am merely a silent accomplice in an unjust system. I can't do that anymore. The definition of courage and character is failing forward, having openness to feedback, an eagerness to change. These words landed for me as I listened to our guest today. Jennifer Brown, a leading diversity and inclusion expert, CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, and author of the book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader, Your Role in Creating Cultures of Belonging Where Everyone Can Thrive. She joins Jerry in this podcast conversation, one that is very important, one that may make you squirm, may make you cry as you think about the loved ones you may have hurt or not seen, and will leave you with important questions and perhaps some actions. For me, started with sharing this introduction with my friend. 
what does it mean to build organizations of belonging? How can you build an organization safe enough for the whole human to show up at work? In Reboot's newest email course, we discover the hidden power and privilege that can pervade an organization and consider what is needed beyond the HR trends and into matters of the heart to create and sustain real places of belonging for all employees. Compiled and created by the Reboot team of coaches and facilitators, this course is a conversation around the question, how can you contribute to creating an inclusive culture of belonging? The course will unfold via a series of six emails full of content, one email per day over six days. And we hope by the end of the course, you have a sense on how you can relate to belonging to yourself, how you create belonging in your communities, work, home, and life. To learn more and to sign up for free, head to reboot.io slash inclusivity. Hi, Jennifer. It's so exciting to see you. Oh, it's so exciting to see and, and talk to you and collaborate with you today. Yeah, yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's make some good trouble together. Oh, I like that. Yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, before we begin, uh, why don't we take a moment and if you could just introduce yourself, however you'd like to do that. Sure. Uh, I have been a diversity and inclusion advocate and consultant and now expert, I think I can call myself after having written a couple books, uh, for about a decade. And I came into this work from the training development and learning and development field. So I have a master's in OD. Uh, and I never knew I would pivot into DNI per se. I was more of a, a trainer and I loved training, soft skills mm. in particular. But I realized, first of all, I identify as LGBTQ. And so I've been out for 25 years, long time. And I think the, the work of learning and development and training, um, I think, led me to realizing that I wasn't bringing my full self into the classroom, for example, as, mm -hmm. as the teacher, as the facilitator. And so I was leaving myself out of the frame, and that was too much cognitive and heart dissonance for me at some point. And that wasn't the job I was there to do. But I think what clicked for me was, wait a second, this is, this is actually something that I could teach from. This is something that mm -hmm. would uh, give me a voice in a certain field of expertise if I wanted to focus and specialize in it. So I would subsequently uh, pivot my learning and development company, my Jennifer Brown Consulting, towards diversity and inclusion pretty exclusively now. And we mm -hmm. were very well known. Um, the books have really cemented our thought leadership, my name, and the demand for the messages that I'm talking about it. And then the world, the, you know, the road has risen to meet this. <laughs> mm. I've been waiting in the wings a long time. Mm. Uh, but I do think, and I think you'll probably agree that there's a huge appetite for this now and it's only growing. It's finally sort of caught fire. And we are very, very grateful for that because I've been, I've just been ready for this, but, but it was always a sensation of pushing the conversation, you know, really feeling like our services and guidance was more of a nice to have than a need to have with the big companies that we really want to serve and that we're, I think, very good at serving, right? That's the world we know. So um, it's it's never been better. Um, it's, it's, it's an interactive discussion now with clients, uh, not a sort of what do we need to do to check the box or meet our compliance or not get sued. It's very much now, um, it's, it's still a little bit of how do we not get sued, let's be honest, but it's, um, right. but it's really right. way more around being a, an inclusive culture because they know that it's good for in the war for talent. You know, you've got to recruit people. Once you recruit those people, you've got to retain them, which is a whole other uh, focus area. And you need to do well 
and good by the markets that you're trying to sell to and market to. You know, you need to do right. that respectfully. You need to do it knowledgeably. And that means that you've got to keep people, diverse people long enough at a company right. that they can be sitting around a table generating ideas and products and working all together. And that's all about inclusion. So, you know, it, it's all kind of converging in a, in a way that I'm extremely grateful for. Well, and, and I'm grateful for that full introduction. And your new book is How to Be an Inclusive Leader, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Your Role in Creating Cultures of Belonging Where Everyone Can Thrive. And, you know, before we started recording, I did share that, you know, I got a galley and I got a note from a publicist and, and I actually pulled this one out and I read this in one sitting on an airplane ride, start to finish. And uh, we don't record video, but I already showed uh, Jennifer that my copy is all marked up. <laughs> and what really caught me was the notion of creating a, a culture of belonging. Because, you know, as we were talking uh, before, so much of what we try to do at the company and so much of what my life is really organized around is this notion of, of really exploring the things that stop us from being better humans, because I believe that better humans make better leaders. Mm-hmm. And when I said that to you, you smiled because I think we're in, we're in agreement that working with our unconscious biases, working with the ways in which we, have met, we may have been socialized racially, working with the parts of ourselves that we don't really want to look at. That's right. Um, is an important component of actually leading well. And, you know, I would argue, and I have, um, I'm I'm kind of a poster child in some ways for this notion of authentically showing up and being vulnerable. Mm. And um, I think that um, this book is one of the best books I've ever read on how to actually be more than, forgive my words, because these are words coming from my daughter, more than just an ally, but a co-conspirator. Oh, an accomplice. That's the other word. An accomplice. (laughs) Right. My my daughter, uh, I remember once giving a talk at a Women's Leadership Summit, and I said something to, to Emma, who's 27, and I said, you know, hey, you'd be proud of your dad, you know, and she goes, you know, dad, I, it's great that you're an ally, but what are you doing to overturn white supremacy and patriarchy? You've got to love that generation talks about this in a whole different way than even my generation did. Certainly baby boomers, I'm a Gen Xer, but it's exactly. the language has changed so much and I, I love it. And yet when you work with uh, all generations in terms of influencing change, right. you need to right. make sure, as we say in consulting, meet the client where they're at. And the discussion of white supremacy can totally bring progress to a standstill if the audience isn't ready to have that conversation. I, 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 I hear you. I hear you. And I bring it up only, only to acknowledge that I identify with, with the pronouns he, him, his, yes. that I am white and I am male, I am cisgendered, and I have power that I don't even recognize just simply by walking down the street in the meat bag that I happen to have been born in. And I feel um, um, a moral and ethical responsibility to name that. Um, and so I hear, I hear that. And um, 
uh, I love being challenged mm. because that's how I grow. But you're like the rare person. <laughs> we do not like being uncomfortable and particularly about this topic, you know, because it's so personal and yeah. it's, it's been, I think feedback has been delivered in a bit of, sometimes in a bit of a, a adversarial way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's so much emotion behind it that's so real for so many of us. You know, there's righteous and right anger, I would say, yeah, <laughs> and frustration yeah. with the pace of change. And um, But I tell my, my audiences, if you're not uncomfortable every day, you're not leading. And so oh why would God, that be? I love that. Yeah. So why, <laughs> would that be, why would that be true in all these other realms of your leadership, right? So sure. I'm uncomfortable because I'm launching a new product or I'm hiring a whole new team or I just are, we're going through org changes. All of that is really uncomfortable. And we somehow, we learn how to navigate it and we, we view it as sort of the ability to do that as a skill set. But we expect diversity and inclusion to somehow sort of magically you know, magically come down from above and land in our lap. Um, But it's uncomfortable too. And I I just, I, I, I'm, it confuses me because I'm like, well, anything, things that are worth having are often work, you know, their work, they require discipline. They require changing your habits. They require trying new things. They require making mistakes. They require apologizing, (laughs) you know, and Mm -hmm. that's kind of the, the journey we have to go on with this work is, is, um, stretching ourselves and our competency and also relying on others and not getting it right. And the, and particularly this topic, because it's changing constantly, the language is changing constantly. How do people want to be referred to? Um, we, I'll just give you an example of tiny nuance. You shared your pronouns as a cisgender mm-hmm. man. I'm a cisgender woman. Uh, cis is C-I-S, which means same in Latin. It means that there's a congruence and a matching between the gender of the body I was born in and my sense of my gender. So I'm cisgender. Um, and the, I guess the opposite of that, although I hate to think in binaries, is transgender, mm-hmm. right? So trans, cis, and then we have gender non-binary, gender fluid, and there's mm-hmm. a continuum between these two. Uh, but we, sh- we just shifted from saying preferred pronoun to pronoun. Mm-hmm. And it is like a total subtlety. And this is total inside, inside baseball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's maybe helpful for people who are listening who say, what is this whole pronoun thing? Like, why is everybody talking about they, right. them, theirs? And it sounds grammatically incorrect vaguely. So right. I don't, I'm not right. really comfortable. Right. The English major in me really stumbles every time <laughs> I, I speak. <laughs> I know. You know, and I'm like, are you really making your grammatical comfort more important than <laughs> how somebody wants <laughs> than to a sense of belonging? Right, right. Really? The answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we have to admit that and, and, then, and then move past it. But so preferred pronoun versus pronoun, it's not preferred. It's actually your pronoun. It is actually Amen. the gender. For a trans person or for anybody who's gender nonconforming who may identify with a different pronoun than other people assume they do, uh, it's, it's a truth. It's not just preferred. You know, it's not right. a choice. It's a, it's a reality. It's a fact. So even that nuance is something that people, even within my community and within the DNI world where we're, we've specialized in this, we, I may slip up and say, well, what is your preferred pronoun? And I try to then just say, what is your pronoun? Like, right. how would you like to right. be addressed? With what right. pronoun would you like to be addressed? And so anyway, it's just, it's even, I just want to make a point that this all can be very overwhelming and it can paralyze us as learners and as leaders uh, because there's such a fear of making a mistake with some, with things that are so sacred to people. Yeah. Um, and then also that are so 
that are just have so many feelings behind them. And I, I do think that it's, uh, it's risky. It is risky, but I think in a very beautiful way and in a way that leadership requires risks, you know, that's how we grow and that's how organizations grow. And that's, that's how right. organizations grow together is by collective risk-taking. It's by joining hands and saying as a senior leadership team, for example, we're all going to leap. We're all going to talk about our diversity stories. We're all going to share our pronouns in our next, you know, all hands. Right. We're all right. going to do this and we're going to bring ourselves up to speed. And there's really safety in numbers with this stuff. Like that's why the, the lone accomplice a senior leader who, you know, is the one that I'm buddies with because they're like, oh right. gosh, I wish they would just get it. You know, I'm, right, I have, right, I have a right. trans kid and I'm like, I'm there, you know, and I'm, I just feel like we're sort of, the rest of us are lagging behind. Um, we've got to do it together and we have to, we have to reach back and bring each other forward too. Like we've got to, it's not enough to just be running ahead and to get it. I think the responsibility of leadership as well is to look at the org as a system and say, overall, does this culture feel and is it experienced by people as a place of belonging? And if you can't answer that or you don't know what I mean by that, um, I think it's all new language in a way. It's a new way of thinking about, like, am I a good leader or not? It's a very right. new definition. And so right. we are all charting this path together. <laughs> One of the things that I often... Um suggest to clients and guests and, and the folks with whom I work is that part of our experience of being a leader is to lean into the sharp edges of the places where we might feel guilt and shame, where mm -hmm. we feel inadequate, where we feel incompetent. And to allow the experience of that means to allow the fullness of our humanity to come forward, mm. which then contributes to the fullness of belonging, the fullness of the humanity for everyone around us. Right. And, you know, one of the organizing questions I will ask is if your child came to work for your company, how would you feel? And however your child identifies, would you want them to feel that they belong? And I have yet to run into somebody who says, no, <laughs> that's not what I want. It's <laughs> true. That one works. That one works a lot. <laughs> I use <Hey>. that. <laughs> well, by any means necessary. <laughs> I, you know, I pull out the kids all the time. I'm like, okay, so clearly this isn't working. This isn't working. Maybe this argument will work. I mean, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but we have to also acknowledge that, that, that not everyone uh, uh, experiences um, uh, children in the same way. But the point is to really speak to those whom we love and to mm -hmm. think about their hearts. Yeah. And then to lead from a place of that open-heartedness. And the danger and the risk there is that I will feel pain. I will mm -hmm. feel your suffering. That's the risk. Very true. Very but that true. to me is that, you know, I identify mm -hmm. as Buddhist, mm -hmm. right? And the basis of Buddhism is compassion, to be with someone suffering. Mm. You know, um, it reminds me of watching when they see us as a yes. white person. It is an uncomfortable watch, and it's a yes. it's a must. I mean, it for your particularly for everybody, but particularly when you are not in danger of those things happening to you, as happened to those kids. You have to right. bear witness and you have to be uncomfortable for, a, I always say for a moment, the living in empathy with someone for a moment, even imagining that that reality is a day-to-day -day reality for someone. And it may be a momentary discomfort for you. 
and it may be a daily discomfort for others around you. And the workplace is the same. I mean, when you're a woman on a a tech team, that's all men and you have to, you know, just overhear and listen and be sort of part of microaggressions every single day. Um, you know, you put up with it. Um, but it's, it's, it wears on you. It wears on anybody of difference. Um, and so the empathy that some of us have need to have from a place of comfort or safety, not being doubted, not being stopped or mistrusted, um, being given the floor, um, being assumed to have authority and knowledge and expertise, all the passes that some of us get because of just, you said the, the, say the meat, <laughs> what'd you say? The meat bag. Meat bag. <laughs> the meat bag of, <laughs> oh the gosh. The meat bag of meat. <laughs> right? But our, but we can transcend that's we can right. transcend all these things. We have those choices and our own biases. You and I were chatting before this recording started that our biases direct us um, all the time. And uh, those, are, those are things that need to be examined. But in order to examine them, we've got to heighten our awareness to them in ourselves and others. And sometimes people are really even stuck there. They don't see themselves in action. They can't pull away. They don't have anyone that trusts them enough or feels comfortable enough to tell them when they're saying something that's making people um, not feel comfortable. So, So this is not sort of a solo sport. I think it's very difficult to do it alone. I think you've got to... You've got to enlist people and hopefully people will step up because you're a beloved leader and colleague. And, I, and that is my hope. And I'm sure your audience is full of people like that. Uh, where, <laughs> or, you know, not. <laughs> or not. And they're trying to, trying to get right. there. Uh, but right. to surround ourselves with truth tellers and right. folks who, will, um, who love us enough to say, hey, when you say that, I'm not sure you understand how it comes across. And I know, and I'm going to mm. give you the benefit of the doubt because you know, I know your heart, you're well-intended, but what we, a lot of us have to learn is we're, we can be well-intended and be the most biased person ever. And, and many of us are, it, I would say most of us are, if we, you haven't right. gone on this journey and you know this, right. if you haven't tr- truly taken your behavior apart and noticed right. who do you, who do you give the most eye contact to in meetings? Right. Uh, do you interrupt, um, you know, a woman's idea being taken by a man in the meeting. And how do you do that? Do you, are, how public are you? How brave are you in terms of interrupting things when you see them? Or are you still very quiet about it? Like we're all, we are all along this journey and we're constantly making choices to say, am I, am I ready for this next level of boldness and sort of challenging the system? And that's something I think some of us are born loving to challenge the system, but I think most of us are, kind of finding those training wheels and trying to kind of get our legs under us so that we, we know when we challenge the system, we can withstand the, um, the isolation. And honestly, sometimes the, the criticism that comes back to us from the in-group. And, and when I do men's work, one of the most dangerous things you can do is break the man box. Mm. When you break the box of male behavior norms, mm. And you say, you know, that's not cool. I'm really not comfortable listening to jokes like that or how you referred to our female colleague or or the fact that we go to this bar and here's what's Mm -hmm. happening at that bar. That ostracization like really can kick in. And I think I think that's something you build up to from a from a strength of character perspective and mm-hmm. and you know when you're ready. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, I would never throw everybody that's anywhere along this journey into the deep end on some of this. Um, 
it's it, it's a it's a journey where you find your language, you develop your muscles, you train your muscles. Uh, your times get your running times get faster, right? As you get in shape, as you mm-hmm. you know you find you find new reserves of strength. You know what sort of community you need behind you to sort of be there for you when you fall, when you falter, when you feel weaker. Mm-hmm. They buoy you up. They encourage you. They say you can do this. And, you know, I'm thankful to you for doing this. And, and, and that person then keeps going. I, my, mm-hmm. one of my friends said to me once, I never knew what ally even was until somebody said to me, thank you for being an ally. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what is that? <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, and the person explained, she happens to be an incredible straight ally. And this was a LGBT person just being so grateful to her. And she said, I, she said, I can do more of that. Thank you for telling me. And I just loved it. And now she's just really out about her journey as an ally because mm-hmm. allies have their own coming out process. You know, that's the risk when we are mm-hmm. honest about the fact that we stand up for, stand up alongside uh, mm-hmm. stigmatized communities. We, by proxy, sort of take on some of that stigma. And so, you know, there is there is an association um, happening there that comes with its own perhaps repercussions. For some of us, like, well, why are you standing up for that? Or why do you have such a problem with that? Or you're not part of that community. Are you, why do you care? Well, that's the language that can keep a boy in the man box. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. So um, I I will tell you that the times in my life where I have bumped up against the edges of the man box have been hard and worth it. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. And um, my aspiration is to create, um, is to bust the, the, the walls of the, the man box. And I will fail in that full aspiration, hmm. but I will not stop trying. That's beautiful. That's the definition of courage to me and character, what you just described. It's failing forward. It's growth mindset. It's openness to feedback. It's willingness to change. It's eagerness to change. I wouldn't even say willingness. It's literally, I know change is necessary. So how the question to me is like, how can I best change? How can I most quickly change? How can I, how can I embody change and start to lead from that place organically? It's sometimes I hear leaders talk the talk and I wonder how deep is this in them yet, right? Is, is it a path they're walking? Is it, so if I pushed them, would they bounce back? <laughs> would yeah. they be like a weeble wobble or would they like bottom out, yeah. right? And to me, yeah. that's that resilience, that give, that flex, that beautiful humility to all the teaching and all the teachers in our journey. Um, and I, I would love to see more leaders. I think the problem is there's so much ego with leadership. There's so, there's such a reticence, particularly for public or high level leaders that are always, you know, being watched and scrutinized that it's, it's, it is true that making a stumble, uh, not having the right answer, not saying maybe anything, like maybe it's remaining silent on something that mm. really matters to others around you. Like say there's some mm. horrible news that happened over the weekend for a certain community and mm. you come into work Monday and you don't say anything right? because you don't know what to say. Or maybe the lawyers are like, don't say, you know, no, mm. you know, if we say something about this, then we have to say something about that. And it's a slippery slope. And there's going to be all kinds of, um, all kinds of fear around you. And I think to be the eye of the hurricane of that fear mm-hmm. and have this tremendous, as you know, as a Buddhist, like 
the stillness, the certainty, mm-hmm. the lack of knowing and the comfort with not knowing and the, and the seeking of being taught and then the um, try again and again and learning through the trying um, and then role modeling. Cause by the way, the more you do this, others are watching you iterate. Others are watching you triumph, stumble, um, mm-hmm. get it partially right. Uh, say what you don't know. I mean, sometimes I'll admit on stage, I like to be very vulnerable on stage, mm-hmm. you know, and say, I, I didn't do mm-hmm. this perfectly. Mm-hmm. And, and I do this for a living because I think that permission for the audience to say like, I, this is, it's really okay. And I'm on whatever timeline is comfortable. Well, a little bit uncomfortable, hopefully for me. Um, but mm. there is no like right answer for how this journey looks. And um, I know mine's been unique to me and I'm sure yours has as well. And there's life always has surprises around the next corner. So mm. when people say to me, well, I think we do great with women or why do I need to know pronouns? And then I say like, there is so much diversity just in your colleagues that people probably aren't sharing with you because they, you don't know how to ask and open the door. They don't feel comfortable bringing their full selves and don't think that's going to be honored. Um, And imagine the, the, imagine the trust and the openness and the productivity we'd have if we all were walking around with that, if we all engendered that sense of belonging, that we were curious about what was what was impairing that or blocking that or um, getting in the way, if we all said, "Hey, if I am an accomplice, how can I remove obstacles to to belonging?" Um, and maybe yeah. it's maybe it's unheralded. Maybe nobody sees me do it. Maybe nobody knows about it. We need the private leadership and we need the public leadership. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think that that the thing about. Um, the work that we've done at Reboot, the thing that I do feel proud of is um, we have leaned heavily into the marginalization that might occur around mental health. Yeah, oh, that's such an emerging had, issue. And, and it began with me being quite open about my own struggles with depression and suicidal ideation. And, and mm. what I experience is that uh, when someone who carries a certain amount of power by projection, Right. People look at me and say, he, if, if he struggles, right, mm. then all of a sudden it, it actually creates an opening. And there's a famous article that was written about me two or three years ago uh, from Wired magazine. And it said, this man makes founders cry. <laughs> and, um, oh. and I always joke about that because really what I'm trying to do mm. is make the workplace safe for feelings, and sometimes when you start to make the workplace safer feelings, a predominant feeling that may arise is sadness mm. because there's been so much suffering. Right. And an area that I know I still need to grow in is to widen the net of that uh, experience to identity, to include um, the fullness of people. Now, what you just said about, wouldn't it be great if we created a workplace where the full person was allowed to show? Hmm. Well, we've been talking about that for years. Yeah. And I don't give us passing grades for talking about that in relation to identity. Yeah, you're right. It's been a, and I was in the leadership space before diversity. So I know hmm. many leadership gurus still don't talk about identity. 
as a, as a right. factor. And I, I feel like it's all I see everywhere because obviously right. that's the lens I see everything through. And it's not the whole story, but it's been right. a huge missing piece for coaches and, and leadership yes. development experts. I mean, when I, when I think about coaching, just to take an example, I just spoke at a coach conference, the IOC, and right. um, it's a partnership with Harvard. And, and, and the way I connected the coaches' experience, they are coaching more and more across difference. They're coaching outside of their familiar right. terrain, and yet they feel very unequipped to understand the experience of a woman of color, say right. that they're you know, a white cisgender uh, coach. And so they're feeling very ill-equipped because um, the discipline hasn't, hasn't embedded this with rigor into our teaching and our coaching and our, our certifications even. I mean, the required reading for anyone who is helping mm-hmm. leaders grow is to understand that I can't coach everyone the same way. I can't support everybody the same way right. because they're dealing with the headwinds or the tailwinds of identity, whether their identity positions themselves in a more privileged place or more comfortable place, gives them more ease on a day-to-day basis, or whether it gets in their way every single moment of every day, like how could you not talk about that in the context of, of a helping relationship? Right. So, right. so I know I, it struck me. And then when I started to Google diversity practices for coaches, I found very little. And right. honestly, it's an idea for a next book for me. <laughs> it is. <laughs> hold on to that idea. Hold on to because- holding. <laughs> because the, 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 and I, th- and, and I will acknowledge that some of this, that, you know, there's a privilege implicit in not having to confront this lack of training yes. within the industry. So true. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and, and so, you know, if I'm going to live up to my aspirational values, I'm going to have to even step it as an individual. I have to step into that uncomfortable spot. Yeah. And, and, Here's a hint to all the folks listening. It's not so uncomfortable. Mm. It's a little scary when you're mm. on the outside. But when you get used to saying things like, I don't know, mm. I'm not skilled, I haven't had the experience, I have biases that have prevented me from really understanding this, and I want to listen, mm-hmm. and I want to grow. It doesn't actually, nobody comes down and yells at you and says, what an awful person. They want to help. They really want to help. I mean, I know if somebody approached me that way, I would, there's a little asterisk to what you just said, which I, a tidbit pro tip I want to give your listeners. Um, Do as much of the work as you can yourself. Right. Don't put it on, don't put the burden on the marginalized person. Exactly. So we call that emotional labor. Um, Mm. And in my world, uh, many diverse people, meaning anybody mm. who's not in a majority group, I'd say, right, in companies, mm. particularly in leadership, is is volunteering, for example, to run the diversity initiative or the, right. run the women's group or teach right. the organization how to market to people of color. And they're doing this because right. it's a passion and they're solving their own problem. Right. But right. Um, to lean then on those folks to educate us is a big burden, additional burden, and they're already sort of tapped out. So I think of it as the 80-20 rule, like do 80% of your work and then use that less 20% to ask really targeted questions that show me that you've applied yourself and done reading and consume media and listen to podcasts and like familiarize yourself with the language of all the different diverse communities so that you have a starting point. Yeah. And I would say, you know, uh, folks who listen to the show and folks who know me, 
um, know that a big um, mantra that I carry is what I refer to as radical self-inquiry. And put simply, it's the means by which the, the masks that we wear are compassionately and skillfully stripped away until you have no place left to hide. And I often advise that to look at the roots of the behaviors that you most likely want to change. And so a core operating question that defines this would be, how have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? Oh, oh, that's like yeah. the million dollar question right there. Yeah. <laughs> And, I say and, I don't and, want them, but I'm participating. But, but I've been really benefiting from them. Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, the truth is, as all of us every day, I am learning every day. And one of the things in reading your book that helped me understand was that my encouragement of myself and others to do, use radical self-inquiry to grow as a leader is incomplete if they are not willing to look at the biases that they have been acculturated with and grown up with, the way they may have been racialized, the way they may have seen what, what quote unquote is normal, mm-hmm. what is a norm, even just language around that. And if you really want to experience the fullness of a fully actualized self as a leader, uh, this is yet another area that you must take a look at especially if you want to create that kind of place where those you love feel like they belong. Mm, that's so true. I mean, I, I think belonging is about, is about love in a way, uh, loving yourself enough to show up at work and bring your full self and challenge the norms. I think that's a love, a self-love, right? It's a self-honoring right. that um, a lot of us were cl- have been closeted about who we are. We've been, sort of heavily assimilating or covering or downplaying our difference. And that um, chips away at our self-esteem and our, our satisfaction and our happiness and, you know, our ability to really be brilliant in all the ways because we're managing our identity all the time. And I think that's very difficult to do and really reach your potential. It's just difficult. I mean, if I'm closeted and I'm trying to show up on a team and I'm constantly managing the narrative and what people know and what they don't know, what I've lied about and who knows what and like, (laughs) and, and who you love and your family is so, so critical and such a big part of all of our lives. And yet Mm. the people don't realize that somehow in their behaviors or their lack of um, attention or dialogue that they're actually complicit in. Mm-hmm. not challenging the, the, the closetedness of, of coworkers. So it's sort of don't, you know, don't ask, don't tell. Um, it's why do we need to talk about this? Why do we need to make diversity such a big deal? When we push back on it in that way, it's heard on the other side as, well, I don't, I guess I don't matter. And right. um, if I fight for myself, it's going to be um, generate negative consequences for me. And there's nobody around me that looks like me. And so I'm really alone. And there's, you know, that's difficult. Uh, because right. then that becomes a very big risk. There's no solidarity. There's no people to sort of, you know, get with and shut the door and say, oh my goodness, I just have to vent. Right. Thing, you know, I heard this comment or, you know, I got this performance review and they right. said that I'm aggressive or, you know, it's, it's these things that a lot of us are on the lookout for, speaking of biases, that these things are said over, it's actually, I could, I, I write a lot of them in my book. They repeat over and over, believe it or not. There is right. a real pattern to all of this. Like right. what I, the things I hear from leaders who are not in a majority group, 
very similar. You're right. to this, you're to that, you're too aggressive, you know, they're being assertive and as viewed as aggressive, you know, they aren't team player or like, it's, it's interesting. The they're diversity a lens. Shit. Yeah. Not a fit. Right. Um, right. Yeah, it's really curious. And then sadly, sometimes people are told straight out that they're a diversity hire or a diversity promote. I mean, right. my, I have friends still who are told that, you know, oh, well, you know, so you're a woman. So, you know, that's in your favor here and like whatever. I mean, this right. stuff is said all the time in interviews right. and everything. So I, I think um, these biases are real. Ask anyone if they trust you, they will tell you what their day-to-day -day life is like and the kinds of things they hear. And that's, believe them when they tell you these things, as I don't think a lot of us make these things up to be difficult. If they hurt, they hurt. If they get in the way of me feeling good about my workplace, I would want to know that as a leader and as a friend. And, right. you know, why don't we love our colleagues in the same way as we might love our family members? <laughs> I, I mean, I know that's kind of a controversial thing to say, but it's, it. Work is 24-7. There's no boundaries anymore. We, we say we want purpose-oriented people in our companies. We say we want to unleash their potential. Right. We know right. that they perform better when they're comfortable and they're bringing their full self to work. And to me, though, then how do we put a boundary around that and say, well, this is okay, but this isn't okay. And I don't want to know this. And we shouldn't be talking about this. And you can't have one without the other. You can't have pieces of people and not whole people. And, and we spend like how much of our lives in at work. So it's, it's just in America in particular, <laughs> mm. such an achievement oriented culture. I mean, it's, it's, we're so identified with it. Mm. So for anybody who feels that need to parse out their identity and, and divide it and sort of, you know, constantly bifurcate themselves, or maybe for, for those of us who are managing multiple intersectionalities, I'm not sure if you mm. talk about that a lot on your podcast, mm. but that word basically means the, the intersections of multiple stigmatized identities. So intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. She talked about the experience of women of color mm -hmm. um, walking into a room and having to deal with sort of double potential mm -hmm. stereotypes that are going on. Uh, and then if there are further dimensions of diversity that they're coping with uh, they, who, about who they are, maybe it's being LGBTQ, right? right. Maybe it is um, struggling with mental health issues. In fact, right. I just met somebody who, I'm already a black woman. I can't talk about being bipolar here. Right, right. Literally just said that to me last week. Right. I'm so, already a black woman. Yeah, I'm already a black woman. And, and then if you're LGBT, you hide it. So if you can hide it, you will, because you're dealing right. with other stuff and that's so overwhelming. <laughs> right. So anyway, so you get the drift. Like that's, that's the definition of intersectionality. And I, and I would, I, when I give keynotes, I put a twist on intersectionality for me and I take a mm -hmm. little bit of a liberty. Maybe you'll relate to this. I think you probably will, uh, Jerry, that it's, it's a twist. And so I'm not being true to the, the original definition. And I always define the original definition and I attribute it properly. This is very mm -hmm. important. When you quote people, quote them by name, define, you know, do them justice. Mm -hmm. But my ad is my intersectionality, I think, because I've led such a privileged life mm -hmm. and because of the skin I was born in, the, my gender expression, I don't know if it's more normative, who knows? I'm sort of a, a feminine expressing person. Mm -hmm. That's how I'm most, most comfortable. Um, I can walk through the world and get away with a lot of things. Uh, I can pass. Uh, mm -hmm. So my intersectionality is perhaps 
some marginalized identities and also some very privileged identities. And, and mm. so what that, that mix that makes me who I am, it comes with needs and opportunities to support. Mm-hmm. So my needs are for allyship and accomplices because I need my straight allies. I need my male allies. I need, mm-hmm. I need those every day. Like I, I appreciate them. I relish those relationships. I, they give me strength. Mm-hmm. They push me beyond what I think is possible for myself. They advocate for me. They have my back, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. I need to turn around mm-hmm. and do that from my other identities of privilege and be that ally and be that accomplice. And so that is how I kind of define where I fit because I think many people are stuck with where do I fit? I don't fit in this conversation. And, and to me, that's just a failure of how we've just, how we've described it, I think, because Mm -hmm. everybody does fit. We all fit. We're all intersectional. We Mm -hmm. all, you know, have things that are visible, mainly not visible Mm -hmm. that are, that are sources of shame or challenge or things we don't talk about, um, things that, that we would never share as a leader. Mm. Um, but when I open the door and talk about this and say, well, we all, there's many things that all of us aren't bringing to work. I mean, when we talked about the man box earlier, I think Mm. the workplace is very harmful for lots of different kinds of men, but we don't talk about that. And we don't talk about the experience of men of color, um, who simultaneously have to fit into this culture, but are people of color and walk into the room as a person of color and can't take that off. And we don't, we don't talk about queer men. And we, so even within mm-hmm. each of these communities that we assume when we look at people that they have it easier, it's not always true. You know, I can walk into a room that looks a lot like me and mm-hmm. I have, I have now trained myself. You talk about bias. I have trained myself to say, there's so much I don't know about each one of these people. And, right. you know, my job here is to ensure a space for that work to happen that comfort to, and that trust to be generated. And I'm going to go first, by the way, because I have a position of power in that particular Mm -hmm. moment. I'm going to share first, right? So I, I don't expect everybody else to do the work and I'm not going to. And so between all those things though, I can usually like really unleash some, some amazing sort of humbling uh, stuff that's never been shared before. Uh, Leaders saying, you know, I, I don't understand what this piece of my childhood or this experience mm. in my family has to do with my leadership. And we can actually bring that around full circle and they can say, you know, I've never felt I really understood this diversity thing, but I kind of feel like I'm starting to feel like I'm a part of it. And that was honestly the biggest goal for the book was to say like, how could we get more people to feel they're a part of this journey and not kind of outside and therefore not having a role? Because mm. many of us are tired, you know, we're, we're, we're really pushing a lot and we have been for a long time. And that's why I'm focusing on allyship and accomplishing so much these days, because I think many hands will make light work. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can, if we can successfully enlist folks to do small things, it's not like the big gesture. It's not mm-hmm. always the, you know, the big risky move. It's, you know, it's not the declaration from on high. It's not the press release. You know, it's, it's, it's just warming up your engine and making it a part of your leadership hygiene is, is mm. how was I inclusive today? How do I know if I was inclusive according to whom? Because I think I'm a great person. I think I'm totally inclusive and I get it. And I'm a, or maybe I'm a fe- man feminist or maybe I have daughters mm. or, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean for all of us, I'm LGBT and there's date, there's moments I'm sure that I don't get it right. So right. each of us, I think has to look at ourselves and say like, am I growing 
in this discipline. And it's such a wonderful journey. How could it ever be bad to learn more about what makes people tick and what their truest truth is? Like that's beautiful stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I want to tell you that I, I think you accomplished the goal that you set oh. for yourself. <laughs> and I think that that's really important. And I'm going to close with reading to you um, a part of a uh, really early part in the introduction, um, uh, a section that really struck, to, uh, struck me. And then maybe we'll start to wrap with, on that thought. Inclusive leaders bring more of themselves to the workplace than other leaders believing that through their own vulnerability and authenticity, they can create space in which others can do the same. They don't just push others to be blindly authentic, but plan with them to stretch forward, to take calculated risks, while never encouraging someone to push themselves out there before they're ready or put themselves into career peril. They always offer to be present alongside others to lend a voice. They seek as much feedback as they give. They are aware of and know how to utilize their privilege to raise issues, to challenge norms and behaviors, and to root out and prioritize core issues that perpetuate exclusionary dynamics. They push themselves as much as they push others, and they do all of this consistently. I read that and I had a pause on an airplane (laughs) because I can't think of a more powerful definition, not of inclusivity, but of leadership. Mm. Because I no longer want to define leadership without inclusivity. Agreed. It doesn't make any sense to me. No, it can't. Not in the world where we live in and not, not with the income. Not in the world I want to create. Right. Exactly. We don't, we can't create it just for some of us who happened to get someplace faster, right? right. It's, and not, and not through, yeah, I get that I worked hard. I worked hard too. You know, there's, I have to go back and forth with people to say, well, I, I had difficulty in my life and, and I'm like, yeah, but there's some systemic tailwinds that enabled a faster journey and that that's nobody's fault. You know, we were all born in the place we were born, you know, and I, I've wondered why was I born into the comfort that I was. And, and now I know because of how I'm dedicating my life, right. It makes sense because I was given this so that I could, I could do this work and be heard, perhaps seen by someone understood. I could crack something open. I could, Maybe I could lead the charge. Maybe I, I think of myself as a Trojan horse. You know, I right. I could get up to the castle walls and I could I could talk somebody into opening the door, right. and right. then if I could get in there, I could bring everyone in eventually with me. And uh, they're under me. They're in me. I mean, they're in. But like, it's it the packaging and the messenger. The messenger of this work is just as powerful as the message. Yeah. And um, and I feel that we all of us. All of us have a role to play. So the quest should really be like, what is the exact, what is my best and highest use in, yeah. in exhibiting yeah. this and changing things around me and challenging people? Like we all, we all can do this. We have more power than we realize and we're very underutilized. We're underutilizing ourselves. I'll share with you something my, my dear friend and teacher, Connor Mason, said to me on a podcast a couple of years ago. She said, 
you don't have to feel guilty, Jerry, but you have a responsibility. Mm. And um, I take that responsibility really seriously. Mm. And and shame and guilt are non-starters, I think, for action and that's right forward movement. So, you know, I'd say don't retreat into that feeling for very long. Certainly feel it, <laughs> yeah. notice it. Yes. Notice it like a cloud going by. Say, okay, I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling mm-hmm. it. But don't don't wallow in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think move not past it, but through it. You right. will probably never lose it. You may carry it along with you. I certainly do because it keeps your heart open. You right. know, to remember that shame and the guilt and the and the um, discomfort and the regret and the all the things we didn't understand that we understand now. You know, we we've mm-hmm. been shown we've been shown mm-hmm. a different way. And to me, the measure of a leader is you've been shown. So, are you choosing to be on this journey? And that's I think you and I would probably very much agree is the measure of you know that that um, that next level leader. Um, so I agree. Inclusion is a must, must be embedded in this. Every time we talk about it, it needs to be a part of the DNA of the conversation. And, and, and it gets to be a part of it. Like it's just such a, it's such a discovery. It's, um, when we talk about this in the rooms I teach in, there, there are family connections being made in people's Mm -hmm. minds. There are Mm -hmm. loved one connections. There's, um, anytime your leadership is present, anytime you're in community with yourself or another person. That's right. And so any any format or or place in your life that you can apply this, you'll find it has this sort of applicability right. that makes you so much a better parent, a better spouse, a better friend, a better partner, and a better leader. So uh, there's a lot in it for us to take this journey. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. As, as I thought would happen, I've learned a ton. Oh, and again, I can't recommend the book highly enough. Thank you for writing it. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Will any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galilee. We often talk about the work of rebooting your leadership as individual work you can't do alone. If each member of your leadership team is pursuing the work of self-inquiry and actualization, that's wonderful. But to create the company that you'd all like to work for, you must also create the opportunity for the collective to grow. Experiences like facilitated leadership groups, off-site retreats, organizational change explorations, and immersive leadership trainings move the organization closer to its fullest expression of the inherent values. 
At Reboot, we're here to support you and your team members in bringing forth the best that you have, using everything that emerges from organizational life, both the challenges and successes, as opportunities to grow. Head to Reboot.io slash team experiences to learn more and more about Reboot's virtual and in-person team offerings.